You're listening to episode 200 of Mid-America Reform Seminary's Roundtable Podcast. In this broadcast, the faculty of Mid-America discuss theology and cultural issues from a Reformed perspective. I'm Jared Luchbord, Director of Marketing. Thank you for tuning in. Concluding this segment of Church History on the Middle Ages, Dr. Alan Strains joins me for one final time to elaborate on the rise and early spread of Islam. Dr. Strange, how are you? I'm doing very well, Jarrett. Dr. Strange, tell us about Muhammad and the beginnings of Islam. Well, Muhammad, whose dates were 570 to 632, claims to have received prophetic revelation. He was not a learned man. And so for many followers, who those who ultimately became followers of Muhammad, this enhanced or increased uh, their devotion because they saw it as especially miraculous that in this cave uh, he received these revelations and he couldn't, they say, have invented them or made them up. Uh, and it's interesting, uh, just to, to contextualize it for our listeners, uh, if you would like to, you can go to a, a website, you can Google this, and you can see um, the the kinds of uh, comparison and contrast that's made between Muhammad and Joseph Smith, who also claimed to receive angelic direct divine revelation. And ultimately, what is published from these supposed revelations that Muhammad receives is, in his case, the Quran, mm. and in Joseph Smith's case, the Book of Mormon. And both of them claim to be a kind of correction of the Bible, of the Old and New Testament scriptures at points, and a completion of that revelation, with Muhammad claiming to be the last and final of the prophets mm. of Allah, and Joseph Smith claiming to be the last and final of the prophets and his production in the Book of Mormon. There are, some, there are many parallels there. I'm not going to talk more about that right now. But um, Muhammad emerged in his hometown of Mecca about 610 uh, as the preacher of this divine revelation uh, that he felt called upon to pass on to his Arab fellows. And he would say to his pagan Arab fellows, uh, he sees himself as bringing a truth that had been in a measure brought to Jews and Christians, but now was brought in this sort of finalized mm. form, you might say, into Arabia, Saudi Arabia, which he saw as pagan, as he saw as polytheistic, uh, because it was. The Arabs were polytheists, had forms of revelation similar to the Quran, but Muhammad denied ever belonging to that number. He claimed rather to give the Arabs in their own language uh, the final part of that revelation. This is the way he put it. The final part of that revelation given to Adam, Abraham, Moses to the Jews, then through Jesus to the Christians. The way for monotheism had been somewhat prepared by the Jewish and Christian communities along the so-called incense road. We think about the Silk Road from the east. This incense road was from Yemen to Syria, and um, Muhammad fully exploited this. So in other words, some monotheism had come into Arabia from those Jewish and Christian sources, mm -hmm. and um, Muhammad fully exploited this, calling for Islam, submission, 
and for everyone to be a Muslim, which is one who submits. Mm. And the first followers were close prophets, were, were close relatives of the prophet. His wife, uh, Khadija, daughter Fatima, son-in-law Ali, his uncle Abu Talib. And so he brings this forward to the, the merchant oligarchy that ruled Mecca, uh, and they rejected him. Mm. Um, it's interesting that Muhammad always he was very convicted that this, what he took to be a divine revelation that he had received, uh, he was very convicted that this should be received and embraced by all who heard it. And uh, those there in Mecca did not receive that. So he fled uh, in 622. He fled Mecca in the so-called uh, Hijra uh, to uh, Yatrib, to Medina. Mm. And uh, that's... Uh, very important on the Islamic calendar. He arrives there on September the 20th, 622, and founded there in Medina a theocratic community uh, and became a, became a kind of conquering warrior, seizing Mecca, going back and seizing Mecca in 630, which became the religious center of Arabia. And he himself died on June the 8th, 632. So when did... Islam began to turn more violent, and what was the reason for that? Yes, that is a, a fascinating question. Um, what you see with um, what you see with Muhammad when he first brings forth this message, as I said, that he expected to be received, uh, it does not appear to be at this point uh, a particular, a particularly uh, warlike sort of message. Uh, but as it is rejected, as I said in 622, and he moves, uh, he goes then to Medina for the next eight years. There in Medina, he expects particularly uh, a community of Jews there and nearby. He figures, well, those folks in Mecca were just Arab polytheists still. I couldn't convince them of the monotheism. I don't have to convince the Jews. They're clearly monotheists. And by the way, he thought that the Christians had somewhat compromised mm. monotheism by their doctrine of the Trinity, right. which he didn't correctly understand, of course. Yeah. But um, so he really anticipated in the mid-620s that there would be a great embrace of his teaching. He thought he would be a kind of new and, and final was his claim, Moses for the Jews, and the Jews did not embrace him. Mm -hmm. They did not embrace his teaching, and he was embittered a little bit. It's interesting. I don't want to—I I, just—we're going to be—we're honest here in all of our history, and some people, let me just say this, some people may know already and, and be concerned about, and it's a concerning feature, of Martin Luther's anti-Semitism. But Martin Luther turns— bitter against the Jews when they didn't receive his reformational recapture of the gospel. He thought they would. He thought there would be a great conversion of the Jews by dint of his promulgating of this uh, recovered gospel. Uh, and he thought, as he read even Romans 9 to 11, that this would be this would happen. Mm -hmm. And when it didn't, he became embittered against the Jews. Uh, so... We have our own baggage in that respect, but Muhammad uh, became very um, 
you might say, um, weaponized. He weaponized uh, Islam at this point and began to talk more about jihad. Mm-hmm. And jihad had always been there as a as a Quranic principle, but it was probably more spiritually. I mean, Christians talk about warfare. Uh, you can think of Ephesians 6. Paul talks about put on the whole armor of God, but we understand that he's speaking spiritually because our warfare is not with flesh and blood. It's with principalities and powers. And uh, so it may well be that earlier uh, Muhammad's uh, citation of that sort of thing would have been more spiritualized, but it becomes it becomes clearly uh, external and actually warfaring. So what accounts for the uh, incredible spread of Islam and how does it promote the development of Europe going forward? Well, the spread of Islam is going to occur now. Muhammad dies, as we said, in 632. From, so from 632 to 732, a hundred years, Islam is going to spread from where it is in Arabia to North Africa. It's going to move through North Africa. It's going to cross over uh, into Europe uh, on the Iberian Peninsula, Mm -hmm. Portugal and Spain, and move through to 732 to the Battle of Poitiers or Tours where Charles Martel, the hammer, grandfather of Charlemagne, stops the advance of Islam. So he stops it at that point. But going back to the other side, the Levant, moving up from Arabia, it's going to also conquer a lot of that part of the world. It's going to surround, you're going to have a lot of of the Mediterranean uh, on its southern shore and its eastern shore and some of its western shore, uh, uh, northwestern shore, is going to be Muslim. And um, what accounts for this is uh, a fascinating discussion. Uh, the Muslims go out in this century. You, you, you have, first of all, what's called the Rashidun Caliphate that arises immediately after the death of Muhammad. That's 632 to 661. Uh, and then you're going to have the Umayyad Caliphate, which is 661 to 750, and you'll have other and later caliphates. But you're going to have this going out with great military power and part of what it's going to be encountering, to be frank, uh, is something kind of sad, Jared. It's going to encounter in certain places, particularly in North Africa, forms of Christianity that are defective. It's going to encounter Coptic Christianity, for example, in Egypt, which is uh, a monophysite Christianity, a Christianity that does not properly understand the humanity of Jesus, mm-hmm. that just talks about the deity of Jesus. And so there's a weakened Christianity that it often confronts. And one could say that in a certain sense, the Lord uses this to bring about the, you might say, the chastening of some of these forms, these defective forms of Christianity, and thus strengthens orthodoxy uh, by it. Yes, many who are under the Christian banner suffer. uh, And as it goes out, uh, the people are reduced in these places to what's called the vimitude. And Jews and Christians in these conquered places in, in North Africa and elsewhere 
often have to pay up to, as a part of this tax against them, uh, have to pay up to 40 or 50 percent of their income. And so this this builds, as it were, the the whole Muslim kingdom, you might say. But you ask, you know, where does where does Europe uh, come into this? Well, let me just say this: a, a couple of observations I should should make about Islam, the cult and the ritual of of Islam, the the tradition and the law. You can think of the tradition and the law: Sunnah, Hadith, Sharia, and the theology of Islam. All tend towards an externalism. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason it's appealing is it tends towards an externalism that well comports with an unregenerate religiosity. In other words, take the five pillars. People often look at the five pillars of Islam and say, wow, those folks are really religious. Well, those things are all really very manageable and doable. <laughs> yeah. uh, the five pillars are the, the, the Shahada, there is no uh, God but Allah and Muhammad is his, pro- uh, and, Muhammad and is Muhammad his prophet. Yeah. Uh, the Salat, prayer five times a day facing Mecca, the zakat, 2.5% of the income, the psalm in Ramadan fasting, in Ramadan the hajj, the journey to Mecca if you can make it. Uh, all of those are pretty uh, pretty doable. And um, Ham notes, practicing prescribed rituals is more important in Islam than confessions, than the confession of doctrines. Hmm. So these actions are much more important. And it's by nature militant the 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 especially as it's developed in the 620s the whole world it's seen as its field of conquest jihad is in force until all submit to allah there can be truces there can be treaties uh, treaties of protection uh but tribute must be paid by those to whom such favor is granted uh, requiring sometimes as i said a moment ago half of what they produce like 40 or 50% unlike the zakat which is 2.5% that's what a faithful uh, Muslim is to give. And so you could say, did Islam prosper in the years uh, after conquest because it exploited Christian and Jewish capital and and um, then it spent that and it didn't have anything to offer? You can talk about the rise of Islamic scholarship and it subsequently uh, declined. And so it was, it was, let me just say this, it was an attenuated Christianity. It was a weakened Christianity that met and quite often welcomed against the enforcers of, of Chalcedonian Christianity, Islam, an Nestorian Christianity in a lesser degree, a Monophysite Christianity in a far greater degree. So Islam seems to, you could say, have been used as a rod to censure such defective expressions of the faith and to cause the Western faith to develop in ways that it hadn't to address the doctrine of the atonement and so forth. We could say a lot there, but you asked about the development of Europe and from the end of the 7th century to the middle of the 11th, the Mediterranean come, came to be called by some a Muslim lake. As I said, it was Charles Martel's defeat of the Arabs on, on the Western Front at Poitiers in 730, 732 that ended the expansion into Western Europe by way of Spain. What happened was that because they were so surrounded, uh, what we know as Europe was so surrounded by Islam, that the trade of the Western Empire with the Orient waned during this time. Cities declined. The seeds of feudal and manorial society was sown in the wake of that kind of encirclement and aggression of Islam. The Islamic domination of the Mediterranean during a crucial part of the early Middle Ages created the essential conditions for the birth of Western Europe as a distinctive cultural 
entity. Here's how. The Muslims forced, in a sense, Western Europe to fall back on its own distinctive resources and to develop its peculiar Germanic and Roman heritage into a unique culture, accomplishing this by diverting the attention and energies of the Eastern Empire at a time of Frankish and Lombard ascendancy and by greatly reducing Western navigation of the Mediterranean. As Western shipping in the Mediterranean was reduced and and the coastal urban centers declined, people who would have been in trade in the city moved to the interior to work the farms of the great landholders and a mild serfdom emerged. But this sort of allowed Europe to develop its own sort of culture, its own institutions, and Christianity to be seen as this this bastion, if you will, against the the Muslim invader, and so uh, this 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 contributed signally to the development of Europe. We're excited to welcome Dr. Cornelis Venema for a special three-part series next time exploring Heidelberg Catechism Question and Answer 80, the portion of the catechism that critically examines the Roman Catholic Mass. Over the next three sessions, Dr. Venema will take us through the history behind this section of the Heidelberg Catechism, where we'll learn about the origins of Q&A 80, which was added to early editions of the Catechism. Dr. Venema will explain the Reformed critique of the Mass, discuss why the authors included this question, and explore the continuing relevance of Q&A 80 for Reformed theology today. If you enjoyed today's episode, consider subscribing and sharing it with friends or family. Your support helps us bring more engaging content to your ears and helps us foster not just a community of lifelong learners, but thoughtful practitioners. I'm Jared Luchibor. Thank you for listening. We'll see you in the next episode.